Welcome to SCN2A Insights, bringing you the latest research and clinical updates on SCN2A and genetic epilepsy from around the world. Hi, I'm David Cunnington. And I'm Chris Pearce. And welcome to another episode of SCN2A Insights. Our aim is to try and give people a better understanding of what's going on in the SCN2A community. In this episode, we're going to focus on the natural history study that's been coordinated by Dr. Catherine Howell, who's our guest. And Catherine's a paediatric neurologist and epileptologist at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. She's done a lot of work on SCN2A-related disorders, including a key publication that outlined the clinical presentations of SCN2A. So welcome, Catherine. Thank you, Chris. Today we're going to talk about a natural history study and why it's important within the rare disease space. So can you explain to us what is a natural history study? Yeah, so a natural history study looks at the evolution of a condition over time. In the context of SCN2A-related disorders, that sometimes means from before the child is born and then up until the current age and ideally beyond. And the reason for doing a natural history study is we need to have a good sense of how a condition evolves over time for a couple of reasons. One is to be able to inform families about prognosis and what to expect for the future and inform our clinical care. Um, But the second and really critical reason is that it will help inform future treatment trials. When we do future treatment trials, we um, need to decide on particular um, outcome measures and how will we know that a treatment has improved a child's condition over and above what would be expected without treatment. And in order to do that, we need to know what you would expect without this new treatment. Now, SCN2A is, I guess, a little bit different to some other conditions in that the type of symptoms you can have and how severe your symptoms are is somewhat variable. And we're hoping to tease all of that out with the natural history study. So thanks for that understanding about the natural history study. Who's actually involved? So the natural history study is being led by me at our Institute the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne. A major co-investigator is Dr. Marcus Wolf in Berlin in Germany. Now, Marcus is uh, also a paediatric neurologist um, with an interest in genetic epilepsies and uh, in general and SCN2A in particular. And Marcus was the lead author on the largest study of SCN2A related conditions that was published in the journal Brain in 2017. So between the two of us, we have quite a lot of experience with SCN2A. Um, We have involvement of some other clinicians around the world from the point of view of helping set up the study and helping us to recruit patients, but we are the the two major sites at this point. Um, I also have a a research team uh, with a couple of research assistants who some of the participants in the study will meet along the way. So what does it look like for a family or a person with SCN2A? What does it look like for them to participate in this natural history study? So as part of the natural history study, we need to collect information about the participant. The information we're collecting includes what is their SCN2A variant and a lot of information about their medical and developmental history with a real focus on how things have changed over time. For example, at what ages were certain developmental skills acquired? The medical history aspects of it includes details of features such as epilepsy, movement disorders, abnormalities of tone, gastrointestinal symptoms. So we're really covering a real broad brush of things and not just focusing on epilepsy or just focusing on intellectual disability, for example. In terms of what is actually involved, we collect information from the parent or the participant themselves, in most instances likely the parent, and also obtain medical records So the the 
parental questionnaire is actually part a written questionnaire and part an in-person or over-the-phone interview for most uh, most participants um, unless they happen to be in Melbourne. Then the medical records we'll obtain uh, includes details of the medical history, but also we're, um, we would like to obtain the EEG recordings and the MRI brain images where children have had a brain scan as well. For participants in Melbourne or uh, probably in Berlin as well, we'd also have an in-person assessment. We would love to be able to do this for all participants around the world, but it's obviously very logistically challenging. And so that won't be part of the study for the other participants at this point. We will be doing a baseline assessment. This is for the parental questionnaire and medical records collection, which includes obtaining information for the whole of the child's life up until the current point. And then then we'll be doing some yearly follow-ups to see what's happened over the previous year. And you mentioned when you were talking then about people participating around the globe and that this is actually an international study. How do people get involved? How do they become part of this natural history study? So if people are interested in participating, they can email us. The email address is scn2a at mcri, that's M for Mary, C for cat, R for rainbow, I for igloo, um, .edu.au. You said Marcus Wolf is going to be doing some patients with SCN2A in uh, through Berlin. Do the, all the patients come in via you and then you will forward them on to him? Largely at, at this point, yes. So um, unless a participant is already known to Marcus, in which case he will um, uh, likely arrange that directly. At this point, we will get everybody to contact us via the email address um, and we will take things from there. The process from there is that we will send out some information for the participant or parents to read. We will be available to answer any questions about participation and what the study involves. If the family is keen to participate, then we'll confirm the child meets our study's eligibility criteria and then get written informed consent from the study and we'll take it from there. So it sounds like there's lots of questionnaires. What if English isn't someone's first language or German for that matter? Obviously, we recognise that's a really major logistical issue that could limit participation. And um, unfortunately, like many Australians, I and my research team only speak English, so we're not particularly helpful on that front. We're very lucky that um, Marcus is involved. He speaks German, French and some Spanish. So at this point, the plan is that we in Melbourne will study all English-speaking participants. He will conduct the study on German, French and possibly Spanish-speaking participants. We would love to be able to include people who don't speak those languages. We just need to work out the logistics of those. We would love people to still get in touch with us if they don't speak one of those languages. We hope that we'll be able to work something out that might include arranging an interpreter. So people around the world, no matter what language they speak, should express interest in the study if, if, if they're interested in participating and just highlight what language they would need to participate if it's not English. Absolutely. And uh, we'll do our best to find someone who can help us there. When you were talking about the process of becoming involved, you talked about IRB approval. What is that? And how can patients or families who are involved in this study be assured that their data is being securely managed and under ethics guidance of the institution which it's been approved? 
So this is a, a really important question, something we take very seriously. IRB's Institutional Review Board, that's a name by which is commonly known in the US and, and some other countries. In Australia, we uh, call it our Human Research and Ethics Committee. Um, but basically, it's referring to ethical oversight of the study, in, approval by the Institute of the study and how do we guarantee we will conduct ourselves ethically, protect people's privacy and protect people's information. Now, there are very strict guidelines and criteria in Australia about how we do that. We have ethics approval at our institute at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Marcus Wolf has his own IRB approval through his centre in Berlin. Our ethics approval allows us to recruit anyone from anywhere around the world. From the point of view of studying participants and what we do with the data, I am the lead investigator and I'm responsible for the conduct of the study and the data. The data is owned by me and my institute. Identifiable data will not be shared outside our institute and outside our research study unless we have the express permission of the participant. We do have um, approval to share de-identified data, so meaning no names, no dates of birth, those kind of identifiable information, with our research collaborators for other work on SCN2A and related epilepsies and brain disorders. But we're very careful about the data that we share. Should another researcher or an industry partner want to access that information, is that possible for them to do that if they're developing a treatment or a research project within SCN2A? There's not one single answer to that question. Maybe let me take it a couple of parts at a time. One thing I didn't mention in my previous answer is that our study is supported by the Simons Foundation. Now, you uh, probably know the the Simons Foundation well, a large uh, US-based organisation that is conducting research into various genetic conditions, largely originally based around autism, but expanding to other neurodevelopmental things and with a a reasonably large SCN2A cohort. We have an agreement with them that they have um, helped us advertise the study and have shared their data with us, which is fantastic, and we're very grateful for the support. As a reciprocal thing, we have agreed to share our data back with the Simons Foundation. If the participant agrees to that, we will not share any data without the participant's approval, um, but we do have that existing arrangement. As far as other researchers go, whether we, we, we will sometimes share uh, de-identified data, but that's not a blanket yes. We need to, I guess, take each request on its merit. We need to evaluate who's requesting it, what are they planning to use it for, would we be following the guidelines of our ethics committees, and, and also do we think that the sharing and use of the data will actually benefit science? We obviously need to be um, convinced of the rigour and the importance of answering the question that the researchers are trying to use. Thanks for giving us an idea about the study. How's the study going? Look, it's going really well. So we launched the study earlier in the year and things were a little slow until we got our research assistants on board a couple of months ago, which we now have, and they are fantastic and have really accelerated the process. We have over 70 expressions of interest so far. We're sort of working through obtaining consent and studying all those participants, but we have studied a number of them, actually in a number of different countries around the world. So, so far, I have um, done some parental questionnaires with people in Australia, the US, England, Ireland, Spain, Germany, and 
and soon to include Italy. So that's wonderful that we've had um, interest from a number of places around the world. Yeah, and certainly from our own experience, we really learned a lot with going through those questionnaires with you. It forced us to stretch our memories about what had happened some years ago with our son, thinking about how our son's symptoms may have changed and evolved over time. So it was a helpful process for us too. I'm glad to hear that. This is really exciting and sounds like you're really uh, making great progress. But how long has this been in the works? It sounds like it takes a while to get up and get going. Absolutely does. It, it takes a long time. So we, we really launched the study in early 2019, but this has been active preparation, I guess, since the second half of 2017. So sort of a good 18 months to two years to get it up and running. Things like getting um, IRB approval takes a long time. Things like planning questions you're going to ask and the things you're going to analyse takes a long time. Getting databases set up, employing people, all takes a long time. And then um, the really critical thing uh, is that we need to obtain funding and we were lucky enough to be able to obtain that to do the study. One of the things that's always difficult in scientific research, we've always got uh, more ideas than we have funding to do. So that's a real stopping point. But um, luckily for us, we're up and running and it's fantastic. Yeah, congratulations on the work you've done so far, both in getting it up and running, but now really getting things moving along and starting to collect the information that as a community we really need to help drive treatments. Thanks, Chris and David, for having me on your podcast today. I just want to say a really big thank you to you and all of the other families who've given so generously of their time to be involved in this study. I really appreciate it. Thanks. So great to hear from Catherine about what's involved in the International Natural history study. Personally, we can say having been through that process with our son, we found it did take a little bit of time going through all the questions, but actually really enlightening. And we learnt some things reflecting on his experience and our experience in managing him with SCN2A. If you're interested in more information on the International Natural History Study, we will put all the information in the show notes for this episode. Keep up to date with the latest updates by subscribing to this podcast. Or get regular updates on SEN2A through SEN2A Australia's Facebook or Twitter at SEN2A Australia. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.